Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. In this episode, Albert and I talk about Facebook, one of the largest, most well-known companies in the world. Albert loves Facebook. I had a slightly different view, though. I think Facebook's treading water without a long-term plan. Let us know who you found more persuasive. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan and as always I'm joined by my good friend Albert. Albert, how are you going? Dan, I still can't get over how good your voice sounds with the microphone. <laughs> I, was, I was out for, um, for drinks last night um, with some colleagues who do listen to this pod and one of them called me out on our, our episode last week asking for a, a microphone. <laughs> so I just want to echo that shout out again. I still don't have a mic if anyone from my company um, is listening and feels like they want to sponsor us. <laughs> feel free. Uh, I did notice at my gym the other day, there was someone walking around with a road uh, t-shirt on. So maybe I'll ask him. I don't know what the gym etiquette is about asking people for free stuff <laughs> as they're pumping iron. <laughs> Uh, be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> um, this week, we're going to be discussing the pitch for Facebook. It's been on our list for a while, Albert, and it's about time that we got around to it. As with every week, we'll start off with a summary of the business. We'll then discuss what's driving its revenue, trends in the industry, and competitors, of which there's some behemoths out there against Facebook. We'll finish the episode with our overall verdict on the company. Albert, do you want me to go through the summary? Yeah, let's do that. So Facebook is the world's largest online social network with 2.5 billion monthly active users. Users engage with each other in different ways, exchanging messages, sharing news, events, photos, videos, memes. On the video side, the firm is processing a library of premium content and monetizing it via ads or subscription revenue. Uh, this is called Facebook Watch. You obviously have Facebook Marketplace and other things where you can sell and exchange items. Uh, the ecosystem of Facebook isn't just Facebook, the app itself. There's also Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, and many features around each of those products. Uh, advertising revenue represents more than 90% of Facebook's total revenue. Uh, when I say Facebook there, I include Instagram, WhatsApp, all the rest of it. About 50% of that Total revenue comes from US and Canada, 25% from Europe. Uh, Facebook operates at a margin of 30% plus, which is a super, super healthy margin, particularly when you're turning over in revenue 84 billion uh, in the financial year 2020. And if you look at their historical financials, that's been a pretty steep upward curve. So only in financial year 2018, they were at $55 billion of revenue. That ticked up to $69 billion the year after that and now at $84 billion the year after that. So perhaps in this coming year, they're going to be at $100 billion. They just keep going up and up and up. Albert, you really like Facebook's financials. Do you want to start us off there? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, we were talking about this right before we started recording. If you gave me an investment thesis with um, Facebook's metrics on it, you know, this business is growing 20% year on year. Like you said, really strong, healthy margin of about 30%. But over, um, you know, the last couple of years, its margin has been growing by 20 to 30% year on year. So faster than its revenue, indicating that 
they're really stripping costs out of the business. Um, really strong um, average revenue per user, as well as a really, really strong monthly, monthly active users. I think if I look to see, you know, they're just at 3 billion, 3.1 billion um, active users each month. And then when you take out, um, I guess take that as a percentage of um, the population of the world, Dan, if you take out China, because Facebook isn't in China, they've been banned since 2009, like they've probably got a 70 to 80% penetration in their addressable market. So all these metrics to me is, is amazing. Like this business has no long-term debt on its balance sheet. It's highly cash flow positive. It's a cash machine. You know, you're generating 30% profit every year out of business that's, you know, $80 billion plus. That is a lot of money to spend and reinvest back into your business without taking on debt. I would say this is an amazing business. And then when you show me the title of the investment thesis, Facebook, I, I probably would immediately back down. And the reason for that is, and this is something I, I read and was pointed out, Facebook hasn't been in a positive headline in years. Like, I don't know, Dan, if you can remember the last time I read a headline or a news article that was written about Facebook in a positive manner. I think given Facebook's brand and reputation, that really influences the way investors and investor sentiment thinks about Facebook. And then you then overlay that reputation around, you know, what it's doing with users' data, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, all these things about Facebook employees coming out and talking about how Facebook uses the content created by Facebook users. Um, to me, it's such a tell about, is this the business I should invest in? And then you add another layer of being kind of in the crosshairs of regulators. It's hard to balance how incredible of a cash machine and a growth machine this business is versus what are the tailwinds that it has created for itself and how will those impact the business in the future? Dan, what do you think? A great point. I couldn't think of a positive headline about Facebook, uh, which is just so interesting to think about because there's there's all these different companies in our lives that are ever-present. You know their name, you know their brand. Uh, you talk about them with friends uh, at the footy, at the pub, wherever you might be. Um, when was the last time someone was like, yeah, Facebook, outstanding product, just really love my experience on Facebook? You know, it, it's... It's an interesting thought to think what are the consequences of having that kind of reputation. For me, I the way I view Facebook is they seem a little bit lost and a really good way to highlight that is to compare them with some of their competitors. And for me, you know, the main one would be Google. Both of them generate most of their revenue through advertising. Both of them are these huge big tech brands which are omnipresent in our lives, have all these privacy issues about data management, et cetera. Now, Facebook's margins are higher than, than Google's. They have a 30 plus percent margin, while Google is only about 22%. So in some ways, you could say, well, Facebook's uh, business model must just be that much better. But why am I so much more interested in what Google's up to? It's because they have all of these diverse interesting products which could leave different places you know you got google maps you got google translate you've got 
Gmail, you've got all these different things which lead to different parts of how I live my life. Whereas Facebook to me has been quite stagnant in what it offers to the marketplace. It's really focusing in on these peer-to-peer interactions, this connector. Uh, Instagram, you can say, is it's branching out from its its main game. But even then, like it's a very similar platform to what Facebook was. It's just sort of stripped down perhaps a better user experience. So as much as you're talking about the cash that it's generating, what's been confusing for me is that they don't seem to have a vision about how this cash is going to be spent. And it's strange to think of Facebook as, as having a lack of ambition, but I can't place them in 10, 20 years of, of what they're doing. I can see them doing exactly what they're doing now and probably producing a pretty healthy clip of money, but what's the innovation that they're, they're bringing? And if I look at some of their sort of more recent acquisitions after Instagram, you know, they're investing into WhatsApp. Great purchase in of itself, but I can't quite see how you're going to be monetizing users through just a messaging platform. They also acquired the virtual reality tech company Oculus VR. I mean, I don't know what they're going to be doing with that and how that fits into any of their future plans. To me, they seem to be struggling a bit. Like, I don't see what their future plan is in how they see themselves fitting into the world, except as they currently are, which as a tech company, I think is a really poor way to look at your place in the world. If you think that in 10, 20 years, you're going to be as you are now, you're probably going to be left behind. Yeah, this is an interesting point. I think looking at Facebook's annual report, um, I guess on a side note, I really like that we're doing a lot more American companies or US-based companies because these I love looking at the Form 10Ks because they're just so uniform. Like Facebook's mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. So inherent to that is Facebook's trying to be the place where people connect. So if you're trying to interact with another person online, whether that's through a social interaction, like you and I are chatting right now, um, or whether it's just trying to see what people are up through, like through Instagram, um, messaging people instantly, like through Messenger or WhatsApp, transacting with people. You know, they've got Facebook Marketplace where you can sell things. They've got a payment solution called Facebook Pay, I think. Like, it's trying to be the place where if you want to have any sort of interaction with someone, that's what they're trying to be. So I don't necessarily think that the Facebook Reality Labs isn't too far-fetched if you think about where, you know, social media and digital interactions moving towards, you know, AR and VR. I think they're investing to see how you can seamlessly integrate that into the social media experience. Um, I think for me where I think Facebook is lost is this idea around building communities. I think, you know, there's lots of people who write about this and talk about this now. I think communities are shifting away from Facebook and into more niche areas. Like, you know, Substack has um, grown in popularity in the last couple of years. I think Twitter, Discord for gaming, um, Reddit in some areas. I think there are now very specialised niches of community building across the internet. And Facebook, because it's such a generalist platform, is failing to capture that community building aspect. I had a similar instinct at first as well. And in terms of all the articles, which are a little bit negative on Facebook, they tend to reference this as well. Uh, They tend to reference, oh, people aren't logging into Facebook or signing up to Facebook as much as they used to. 
a really useful chart I found about sort of the number of active users across all the social networks as of last year, Facebook's still killing it. You know, so this is July 2020. Facebook's in the lead with 2 billion, 600 million. The next two after that is YouTube at about 2 billion and then WhatsApp, which is obviously part of Facebook. The fourth is Facebook Messenger at 1.3 billion. So three of the top four are Facebook. You then have uh, TikTok a little bit further down at only 800 million users. Uh, Reddit, 430 million users, as you said. Snapchat, 397 million. Twitter, 326 million. They are dwarfs in comparison to what Facebook has. And I think the key is, Albert, none of these communities are mutually exclusive. Like people naturally have accounts across all these platforms. Um, there is a little bit of competition about how users spend their time, but I think generally users apportion a bit of their time to each platform. I might spend 10 minutes on Twitter, half an hour on Facebook, you know, half an hour on Instagram, that sort of thing. But where they're lost for me is that they don't know who their master is, if you will. Is their master the consumer, the people on their platform, the 3.2 billion users that they have? Is their vision to be providing them the best possible experience to be having a community? Or is it where they generate 90% of their revenue, which is their advertisers? And those two things are in complete tension because the best user experience is, is not necessarily having a bunch of ads. And the best possible experience for your advertisers, the best return on investment for your advertisers is unlikely to be the best user experience. So... Albert, how's Facebook dealing with this tension? I, think, I, I don't know if I agree with that point, though, because when you look at the kind of the three things that make a tech business really successful, you know, the scale, network effects, and brand, the first two things, undeniable in Facebook's favor. So as Facebook optimizes its experience for users, and, you know, I don't use Facebook that often. I've got this extension that blocks my newsfeed and I've had it for maybe five years now. Um, so I, I don't really see um, how Facebook has has changed because I don't have the app on my phone, don't use it. But as Facebook uh, continues to optimize its user experience by letting people do all these sort of interactions, whether it be marketplace or, or messenger, um, you know, it's live stream videos. Um, it's making that platform, its platform, more attractive for its user base. Its user base being you know, it's, it's the people on Facebook who have Facebook profiles. And as a result of that, more people are coming on it, which reinforces the network of Facebook, or the network effect that Facebook has. You know, people generate more content, which means people want to be on Facebook and interact with that content and then therefore generate more content. That then becomes more attractive to its customers, the advertisers or the businesses who are looking to advertise on Facebook because you've got this huge consumer base who are interacting with content on Facebook. So regardless of whether that's a great experience for those advertisers or those businesses or not, like they've got a huge pool of people that they can target who are interacting with the content that they're putting out. Here's my question to you, Albert. Is Facebook in 20 years, is Facebook going to be what we view television as today, cable television? Because what you described there is... Facebook has this 
huge audience, just like cable television had back in the day. You know, they had millions of people tuning in every night, families, whatever, to watch the programming. And so they said to advertisers, you can have your slot shown in front of millions of people, your product viewed by millions of people. And I think over time what's happened, particularly with the internet coming in and Google coming in, is they can say, we're not going to show your product to a million people, but we're going to show your product to the 10,000 people who are your absolute perfect target audience and are far more likely to buy. So instead of you paying to have your product shown in front of a million people, 99% of whom don't care about your product, don't want your product, we're going to show it to that 1% who need it and we're going to give you a better price for it. You know, why is Google so successful? It's because when I type in what's the best podcasting microphone, they can line up the perfect advertisement for me. Like I'm telling them what that what I want. Facebook, a little bit less so. You're dealing with these community-created uh, content, not necessarily direct one-to-one to what the advertisers want. And so if I'm an advertiser, what's the incentive for me to be going onto Facebook if all that they're really offering me is a lot of eyeballs but not necessarily the conversion rate. Like that's the key if I'm an advertiser is I want conversions on what I'm paying. Yeah, it's a good, a really good question. I think when you look at what Facebook has access to versus what Google has access to, if you're uh, just searching for something on Google, you probably have a Google account like most people sign in. Um, Google starts to collect your search queries to then build a profile about who you are to then send you target advertising. Facebook not only has that information, you know, it has your likes and dislikes on Facebook. It has, you know, all these groups and communities you've interacted with. It has another layer of what content have you created on Facebook and how can Facebook then start to run algorithms on that content in addition to what you've liked, subscribed to, interacted with to then send you something really targeted and meaningful. And so if you're advertising on Facebook, what you can then tap into is uh, an individual or a community of individuals who are not only interested in your product, you've got people who could be interested in your product, but they don't even know it yet. You know, for example, you could be joining a podcasting community or group on Facebook or posting a, a message or a post about, hey, just started a new podcast. Facebook can now run algorithms on your posts and the communities to say, this person's now started a podcast. The next thing I'm going to introduce them to is advertising for maybe podcast mics or podcast studios in Sydney because I know they're in Sydney. Or I could introduce them to two-bedroom apartments because they can use their second bedroom to record their podcast. I think the, the, uh, the opportunities for targeted ads on Facebook are greater than Google because it can predict upstream and downstream what you want based on your holistic interactions. I, I disagree. I think Google is the much better platform for targeting what advertisers want. I do accept though that there's just interesting information that Facebook can dive into. So if we go into some of the particulars, what data does Facebook actually use from our profiles? So as you mentioned, they've got where we live. They've got our geography pretty much down. They've got our demographics, age, gender, you know, generally a couple more characteristics behind that as well. Interests, 
all the pages that you like, the community groups that you're part of, shopping, gadgets, sports, it can feed all that in. Behaviors, as you say, they build up a sort of shopping profile uh, based on if you're in Facebook Marketplace. But a really key one, which is where Facebook integrates in with other externals, is they have offline interests. So you might wonder if I've gone and tried to buy some shoes online and that's in a separate tab on my web browser and I've bought something and it's in my cart, through certain sort of interactions and plugins or whatever else, Facebook can take that information and then advertise you know, the same product in your feed, essentially. It all depends on if they have that relationship with the um, retailer that you were just sort of frequenting at but they can use what that they would call offline interests to generate advertisements in your actual Facebook feed. Um, and then on top of that, you've got occasion-based information, which I found really interesting. I didn't realize, obviously, they've got when my birthday is. So as the lead up to my birthday comes up, you know, they can be advertising certain things. If you've advertised that, or not advertised, but put on your profile that you're you know, engaged, expecting a baby, you've moved countries, all these sorts of occasion-based information can feed into the algorithms about what advertisers might want. Um, but I just want to return to that point about sort of third-party external information feeding its way into Facebook. That's been something that's been cracked down. And here we might get into some of the challenges, Albert. A key one is regulation from governments. And a really big innovation or, you know, new regulation in this space is what's called the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, a European law that says that businesses have to protect the personal data and privacy of EU citizens for transactions that take place within EU member states. So even if I, as an Australian, am buying something from a store that's based in the EU, the GDPR applies to me. So it's the internet it's a really interconnected world. So even though it's just the EU, these sort of regulations are affecting a lot of Facebook's business and a lot of other um, big companies. So one of the things that they have to do is they have to give us the ability to see what data Facebook is using, how they're using it, and the option to edit and remove that data as well. These are challenges, Albert, because that's the data they want to use to sell uh, to their advertisers. How do you see Facebook navigating that? I don't know if you watch the, the Senate inquiry hearing, um, the US Senate inquiry hearing where Mark Zuckerberg stands up and the man looks like, I want to say an alien. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, you know, they, you, t you toe the pie line. It's, it's tough when you've got these restrictions on Facebook's business that limits how well it could harness user-generated content to then send target advertising. I think when you look at historically how they've performed since GDPR and the, you know, subsequent um, California Data Privacy Act and, you know, the Australian equivalents here has performed. Like, the business is still growing 20% year on year. Like, it may have hindered the business in some aspects. I think equally um, having some regulation around what Facebook can and can't do with user data and content um, helps investors... Uh, I, I guess combat this idea that Facebook is negative in a particular way um, because there are laws that restrict what Facebook can and can't do. I think it's still playing and still playing very well according to the line of the law. Well, 
If you look internally, so the CFO David or Dave Weiner predicted that as a result of the GDPR and other regulations around the world, there's going to be high opt-out rates from allowing Facebook to track users' activity across particularly third-party sites, the stuff that sort of plugs in. So if users are opting out, it means Facebook will know less about users' interests, life changes, purchases, and that's going to you know, affect the way that they target their ads and the way they can price their ads as well. If I look at other places where it's not just regulation that can affect Facebook, Apple is providing updates to its iOS, which will require Facebook and other apps that are downloaded through the App Store to provide users a prompt to opt out of tracking activities. So this is a really interesting thing for me because it's Facebook is software. I think they never really forayed into building the hardware. Like they never really put into actually having phones designed and built by, by Facebook, which I think is a little bit of a flaw when you thought, think about the way they penetrated the market and had such a big amount of cash that they were sitting on for investment. Because you look at Google and some of the other players that have moved into owning the hardware as well. If you own the hardware, you can really control the apps and software that comes onto it and that user experience. So th these are risks which I think, interestingly, Facebook has found themselves beholden not only to governments but other large tech companies who are making them uh, comply with certain rules and regulations. This is uh, a great kind of divergence, right, for Facebook because they can either be, I'm just going to say, uh, either be a business like Google where they start to move into hardware and play in that space. Can you imagine having a Facebook phone? Like, that sounds terrible to me. Um, right? But the I guess the other path, and this is probably where Facebook is moving towards, is becoming more like WeChat, right? WeChat is effectively an OS system that's built within a, a messaging app. Like, on WeChat, you can uh, pay people, you can call people, you can invest in businesses. Um, you know, it's a social network. Um, you can order cars and food. Like WeChat, holistically, you can do all these things, but it's it's in effect just a messaging app. Google is a, a platform where they've built Android, and you know they've kind of integrated that with uh, their phones, the Pixels, to then provide, I guess, more of a a holistic mobile experience through hardware and software. WeChat's providing a holistic user experience around how you interact and transact and those things we talked about earlier through its historical messaging app. And now Facebook's kind of in this fork of the road where they want to be an ecosystem where people stay on Facebook because, you know, they can't access offline data or the access to offline data is being limited by um, these regulations. Like to me, this is an interesting decision point around what Facebook starts to do. I think they're moving towards WeChat and being this orchestrator of platform where people who want to do all these different things can do it rather than being a, a Google and being an open platform where people build things on top of Facebook or use Facebook's um, platform, hardware, etc. Both things give you stickiness and access to customer data, but where Facebook's expertise lies is trying to optimize a user experience to build connections and community rather than trying to be an open platform. Like being an open platform like Google is the antithesis of what Facebook is trying to be. 
I think this has crystallized something for me, which is I think Facebook has just missed the boat. Because I agree, and I remember hearing about this five plus years ago, is, you know, Facebook could be like WeChat. Like what WeChat is doing is a prime example of how they could monetize and really entrench themselves into our spending habits, our use, our daily habits, everyday life. That, that ship has sailed. Like our current perception of Facebook, the brand association of Facebook, we would never want Facebook that closely uh, entrenched in our lives. Like they tried to start up their own cryptocurrency, right? That was Libra, Facebook Libra, immediately shouted down. <laughs> you know, if cryptocurrency, you, you can think of synonymous with transparency, openness. Uh, those are the benefits of having a digital currency. Um, and if you want to know more, check out our five-minute explanation of Bitcoin uh, in our feed. But like Facebook has, has totally missed that now. They don't have the trustworthiness that they did have 10 years ago. So I don't think they can play in that space. And combined with that, and I'm really glad you brought up WeChat, there, there's a sense of if not being government-backed, they're at the very least a local company. And I see that happening around the regions. Like I see in Indonesia, you have Gojek, which is a very proud Indonesian unicorn which has moved into that space of facilitating payments. Um, I see that happening across the regions. Like I see there being regional versions of Facebook and WeChat and not this monolith, which is Facebook coming over the top. And I think you can see that even in their advertising revenue. So if you break down their average revenue per user worldwide in 2020, it was about $10 per user. Sounds good, but it's actually high. It's like a barbell. It's it's big on on either side, small in the middle. You've got US and Canada, fifty three dollars per user. That's average revenue. That's that's a lot. You're doing really really well. You then go to Europe. It's sixteen dollars per user. You then go to Asia Pacific. It's four dollars per user. You then go to rest of the world. It's two dollars seventy seven. So Facebook is generating its revenue out of the West. Like, let's just be frank about that. But most of its growth in terms of new signups, new users, is from the East. It's from these other countries, from the rest of the world. They're not going to be generating profits on those. Albert, can you tell me the reasons why they'll be able to convert those? Like, look ahead five years. Is Asia Pacific going to have an average revenue per user of $50 as well? Because of what I just said, said about that regionalization, I don't see it happening. This is a, a two kind of pronged question um, because it, it, it touches upon like Facebook's competitive advantage in the East and then that lag in digital maturity between Eastern and Western countries. So in countries like the US and Canada, you know, incredibly mature digitally mobile first countries, um, whilst they had historically some social media companies like think about MySpace, um, GeoCities, etc. Um, until Facebook came along, you didn't have a social media presence that was so holistic around the user experience. Um, you know, they started with this idea of scarcity because, you know, you can only have a, a US college email to then go on Facebook um, and that created the network effect for them. Um, more and more people wanting to be on Facebook because of the scarcity and then growing into the behemoth it is. 
like Facebook Facebook's challenge in Eastern countries is how you start to address the lack of digital maturity. So not everyone in those countries has a phone. Not everyone has connections to the internet. Um, not everyone has um, connections to the West. And so that really limits how Facebook can grow in those markets. So once it starts to address both that aspect and rise the tailwinds of these markets emerging, becoming mobile first, becoming digitally mature, I think Facebook will then, or you'll start to see Facebook's revenue growth in those market segments increase in line with how the US and Canada has grown. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is um, what needs to be true about its competitive edge in those markets. I think in Asia, like it, it's, I think to me is really difficult. Like, you know, it's already not permitted in China. So that's a huge growth market of users you can never get into. In countries like Indonesia, you talked about Gojek, so I think Sequoia backed. You've got this regionalization where until you can get critical mass of users, it's just not going to be where people go to connect. Like, in order for Facebook to really work, you need that network effect and scale that it has in the US and Canada. But unfortunately, you can't, or they will struggle to do that both for the reasons of digital immaturity and because users are already on another platform. But as those countries come out of the East and I guess modernize and people want to connect with people who are, I'm going to say from the West, but people from US, Canada, etc., they'll want to do that on Facebook because those people aren't on Gojek or those people aren't on WeChat. So I think eventually as those countries emerge and want to connect, they're going to do it on Facebook. I think this is old thinking, you know, the idea of the developing market, which emerges in a capitalist society and will then feed into, you know, Western profits, revenue generation. I, I don't consider Asia to being underdeveloped in the hardware side of things. There's obviously pockets here or there where they don't have access to internet, don't have access to phones, etc. But on the whole, Asia, I could say, but on the whole, several of the larger populations in Asia, highly mobile, highly digitally literate. And I think that feeds into a nationalism, a nationalist pride in having homegrown products. Because when we think of modernization, we tend to think of it, I think, unfairly as these countries then plugging in to Western companies, uh, being new consumers for Western companies. Whereas as I see it, it's they're modernizing and so they're growing their own competitors to the Western companies. They're growing their own Facebooks, they're growing their own Twitters, their own Googles, what have you. And so it's not just that they're going to plug into a revenue stream for Facebook, they're actively going to have competitors which fight for the domestic market and they can do it better because they know the market and they can provide a better experience. If we think, if we just tie this all back to what Facebook wants to be, they want to be at the center of communities. Are you telling me that Facebook has the competitive advantage about knowing what a community wants in Indonesia and knowing what a community wants in India, knowing what a community wants in China, if they're allowed in that market? No, it's the local players that will know what community wants there. 
and I think that's why there's there's this tension between what Facebook wants to be doing, the space it wants to be playing in, and actually executing on that, which is why they're in this middle ground. I don't think they've actually made the advances they've wanted to over the years. I think I think you need to look broader than that, though. It's like, does do I think Facebook knows exactly what a community in Indonesia wants? No. But do I think Facebook is the place where someone who is in Indonesia wants to connect with a broader community about something, um, say, for example, podcasting, then yes. The, the, the person who is trying to start a podcast in Indonesia is going to try interact with people who are also trying to start podcasts either globally or regionally. And if you want to do that globally, you want to build a community globally, it's going to be done on Facebook. All right, Albert, tell us your verdict. Again, to me, um, I'm, in, I'm not saying incredibly bullish, but I just go back to the, my original thinking around, if you presented me blank slate, here's an investment thesis of this business growing 20% year on year, incredibly strong market penetration, great network effects, leveraging scale, clear path to be who it wants to be, analogous to say a WeChat. I'm going to say, yeah. And then if you take and put the name on the investment thesis of Facebook, I, I probably would still say yes, despite um, the limited posit positivity and um, brand sentiment Facebook has. Like this is a cash machine that will continue to grow. If we tie this back to, I think the original frame that you said, Albert, was if you take you know the number plates off, if you take the... Um, Facebook off uh, this company, how would you feel about it? And similarly, like if I look at this company, I, I'm really impressed. They are a cash cow. They just generate cash really, really well. So you know, I'm not here to tell you to jump off Facebook. It's a sinking ship. What I am to, here to tell you is I think they're just treading water. And if I was you know, a fund manager, whoever, venture capitalist, and a company came into me, to my office, to pitch me why I should invest in them, the first thing I need to know is the vision, what I'm investing in. You know, what's the clear uh, plan that they have to, to get to where they want to be? And Facebook doesn't have that for me. So as an investor, even if it's on, a, on the other side of things, much smaller side of things, you know, I can still believe in them growing as a company. I can still believe in them generating profits. But if I'm planning to hold this for 10 years, I've got no idea where Facebook's going to be in 10 years. And so it, it's all about comparisons. You know, I've got X amount of money, which I can put into various different places. I'm a little bit more excited, a little bit more sure of where Google is going to be, where an alphabet's going to be, or some of these other larger companies than Facebook. At the moment, I really want to just wait it out. I want to see what happens with regulation in this area, what happens with other technological advantages or technological innovations. And I want Facebook to take a stance, like take a stance about where they're going and what they're going to be using this huge user base, this huge amount of data that they have moving forward. That's, that's the sticking point for me. All right, Albert, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to Fresh Capital, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. Please support our podcast by rating it five stars on Apple iTunes, subscribe and follow. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya.